There are times when I come up here when the special music um, is so poignant and profound that I feel like anything I have to say after that special music is just, it's just not as poignant. It's just not as powerful. Um, I went back and told Mike, I said, that is just the best rendition of that song I have probably ever heard. And you said there's Shane and Chain. So if you're looking to, I mean, that is the kind of song you would want to retreat to your man cave or special room or prayer closet or whatever and just let that music work on you. Um, so anyway, I just felt like I had to mention something. What's that? She shed. Thank you. Yes. I should have remembered to say she shed. So <laughs> mine's usually the doghouse, but uh, yeah, I'm, I, it's all self-inflicted, so it's no reason. It's, but in any, in any case, uh, I just thought I'd share that with you. Uh, so uh, one other thing before we get into uh, the message, uh, one of the things that we lost over the pandemic time was um, people who would be willing to stand back by the door and greet people who were coming in. Uh, and when people come in and they're visiting, uh, really one of the first things that we want them to experience is warmth, hospitality, friendliness. Um, and the other thing that oftentimes they have um, is, you know, questions like, where is the restroom? Um, are we allowed to, you know, eat food over here as well? Uh, where's the pastor? You know, those kinds of things. And so we don't want those people to have to sort of search that out for themselves. So we're looking for four or five people that we could rotate in once a month or once every six weeks who would be willing to take their turn back there and just make it part of their ministry Sunday morning to greet their fellow church family and on the one hand, as well as new people who might be coming and visiting who may have some questions about what we're doing or what they might need or those kinds of things. So if you are willing to do that, um, could, you, could you just mark it on a little blue slip or something like that or let me know or Rocky Locker, you could let him know too. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll work you into that um, because it really doesn't seem like it, but it really is an important ministry. And so uh, that would be very helpful to us, okay? So we need to still shake off some of the doldrums of the pandemic that still cling to us. That's one of them, and anything that you could do to help us in that way would be greatly appreciated. Um. So today, you know, we're continuing on in our series on apologetics, and today I'm going to be talking about wisdom and the wisdom of the world, um, and all of this made me think uh, about some things in my own life, um, and I've had some of this conversation with a few people here in this room as well as other places. But on October 6th of this year, I'm going to be 63 years of age, 
So I kind of feel like I got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. But here's the thing. Uh, you know, once you pass 45 or 50, you, you kind of crest. <laughs> There's a crest there, right? And it seemed like it was a slog going up the hill. And then when you got to be about that age, it seems like somebody was really greasing the skids on the way down, you know? And I know that that day is inevitable for me. I know that there will be a time when I can't do what I do now, and there'll be a time when I can't share what I know now and what I know that I know. So, um, you know, so maybe I have another 10 years. Maybe it's five. Maybe it's three. Maybe it's 15. I don't know. But I do want to maximize the sum total of what I've been privileged to gain and to learn. And really, look, there are people out there who have forgotten more than I will ever know. But what I do know, I know. And... Um, I'm eager to find other ways to get the rest of the music out of me before I can't get any more music out of me. Does this make sense to anybody here? And a lot of times you want to share that with your own kids. <laughs> but I guess that's someone else is supposed to do that because they're not hearing it from you, you know? So I guess what I have to do is I have to find someone else's kids or whatever you know, and say to them what their own parents can't say to them or those kinds of things. So I think that one of the things I'm going to do, and I'm praying about this, is I want to start a regular podcast of some sort. Um, and I haven't come up with a name yet, and the concept of it is formulating in my mind, but it's something that I want to do on a weekly basis where I get to talk about the scriptures talk about real life, talk about walking in, in, in faith in Christ and the, the challenges that are associated with that as well as some other things. So anything from where there are seekers out there wanting to know more about God to people who are wanting to grow in their relationship in depth uh, to God and those kinds of things. So anyway, if we launch that, um, I will need your help to try and promote that. Not because I want to promote myself, I, I'm an introvert by nature. I love being alone. I used to go to, well, Sam and I belong to the same um, uh, uh, ministry out in uh, Elizabethtown, uh, Walt Mueller's, uh, the Center for Parent and Youth Understanding, and that's about a five-hour trip, and I can cheerfully, cheerfully get in my vehicle and drive all five miles and not turn a radio on, or take a phone call or anything, but just be completely alone in my thoughts. So I am an introvert by nature. Um, I, I, I could have been a voice major at Geneva College, but I don't like to stand up in front of people and sing. I don't like the focus, I don't like the attention. Usually when I come here on Sunday morning, I come here because I believe that what I have to say is important for people and that's my motivation. I love to share the pulpit with other people because they have important things to say as well that I cannot say, that, but people need to hear. So this, this 
this is not something that I want to say it's about me. It's something that I want to say that I think that our world needs to recapture what so much of what has been lost. And in, in my life and in my experience in my education, uh, I am somewhat an imperfect repository of that, and I want to share it. So if that happens, I'd like you to help me with that because I think the world needs wisdom. And not necessarily even deep wisdom. <laughs> I mean, we've so, we've so fallen far off the wisdom thing that that just common sense would make a difference in people's lives, right? So, does that sound terrible for me to say it that way to you? Okay, so I hope you understand my heart on that. So here we are, before we get into the whole idea of what, how we defend God and the gospel, we're discussing about why unbelievers choose to reject Christ. And so we've gone over a series of texts, and we're going to go over some again today. We're going to spend a lot of time in the text today, but there are two parts to this, and so the first part has to do the, about the apologetics and the wisdom of the world. The truth is that many will not come to Christ because they trust in their wisdom and in the wisdom of the world. The truth is many, and so in my conversations with other people, in my dialogue with people online, this is paramount. They trust in their own wisdom, whatever, and it's a small w. They trust in their own wisdom and in the wisdom of the world, which is pervasive. So as we try to understand the world's wisdom and how we are to respond to it, Christianly speaking, in an apologetic sort of way, we have to understand that Christian apologetics is both a biblical, theological, and a philosophical discussion. There's no getting away from that. I don't know if you know this, but the word philosophy is really two words, philos, which means love, sophie, which means wisdom, the love of wisdom. In my little group that I'm on on Facebook, my philosophical studies book, <laughs> our group, there's nothing on there about wisdom. No one is looking for wisdom. They're all looking for their own ideologies. It has very little to do with wisdom. And I made that comment, and I got a lot of likes on that. So just in terms of history, it might be helpful for you to know that early Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, that for them the salient question was, what is the good life? What is the good life? And they spent a lot of time exploring what the good life is. And that seems to be a pertinent question. In fact, that question is very much a part of our world today. That, that's the same question that is asked in so many ways. The only difference is that in many respects, what the Greek philosophers came up with as an answer to it is very different than what the answers are today when people ask what is the good life in its various forms. And the Greek philosophers always asked that question both in terms of its application in the physical world as well as the metaphysical world. So they understood that there were metaphysical applications. In other words, 
divine. Divine. So it isn't just what the good life had to do with about this life, but what might be some of the repercussions in the afterlife if I don't do what the good life is now? Isn't that interesting? 500 years before the birth of Christ, they were asking these questions. And so for most of them, they came down on the side of the good life is the pursuit and practice of virtue and wisdom. The good life necessitated the pursuit and practice of virtue and wisdom. So virtue, things like courage and love and honor and truth, integrity, those kinds of things. Now, here's another important thing for you to understand when it comes to wisdom in Christian apologetics. That from the time of the Apostle Paul on Mars Hill in Athens in Acts 17:18, to Clement of Alexandria, Origen, two early church fathers in the first and second century of the church, Ambrose of Milan, second and third century, to Augustine in the 4th century, to Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, to John Calvin in the 16th century, Greek philosophy has been heavily influential in how we defended our Christian faith. Those people borrowed heavily from the Greek philosophers. Their, their systematic way of thinking, their argumentation was heavily influenced by the Greek philosophers in a good way. Which leads us to this question, what is wisdom? Well, in a, in a short sort of thumbnail kind of sketch, biblical wisdom is this. It means to fear the Lord. It means to know and to follow the will of God. It means to meditate and digest God's law, his statutes, and his principles. So, you're familiar with the text, um, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That when we fear the Lord, when we understand that we are to have reverence for him, respect for him, honor of him, and what he requires of us, that it impacts how we live our lives. He is guiding our steps, our decisions, our thoughts. And there is wisdom in that. And then to know and to follow the will of God. To know that God has a plan for your life. That he has a purpose for your existence. And that you are designed specifically for that purpose and plan. And that if we try to use our designedness for something other than for what he has purposed us for, then it creates friction. It causes in us difficulties. And so it's wise then to know and to follow the will of God. But it's also wise to meditate and inwardly digest God's law. David repeatedly says, Oh, how I love God's law, and on it I will meditate day and night. Why? He would meditate on the things of God because those things changed him. And they brought him peace. And they gave him wisdom about how to think about certain things in life. 
about how not to think about certain things in life. About wisdom about how to handle certain things in life. Now, I won't get to it today, but in that iconic passage where Solomon falls asleep and God comes to him and says, I want you to ask for anything, and Solomon asks for wisdom. And then that's shortly after he becomes king. But prior, right prior to him becoming king, when David is still king but very infirm, he makes Solomon king and says to him, I want you to know and to hold on to and to value the things of God and his law. That was David's admonition to Solomon, considered to be one of the most wisest men in history. Scholastically, wisdom is regarded as the ability or result of an ability to think and to act, integrating knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, intuition, and insight. The ability or result of an ability to think and to act, where you take your knowledge, you take your experience, you take your understanding of those things, you take things like common sense, and even intuition or insight, and you put all that together, and you you can either say something or do something that can only be seen as wisdom. I was thinking about this yesterday. I can remember when we were living in Lancaster and we were relatively newly married and we were, um, we were planning to have our family. And uh, I was, I think I was away and Ruth went to a Bible study at our church. And in our church, we had this thing called the parlor which was a big room with a lot of fancy furniture, and, and that's where the ladies' tea and um, uh, the ladies' Bible study would meet. And so Ruth went to that, and that particular morning she started getting faint, you know, lightheaded and, and a little nauseous and stuff like that, and she went, had to go sit down, and there was another woman named Marsha. Do you remember Marsha? Uh, she came over to you, and you said, I don't know why I feel like this way, and Marsha went, do you think you might be pregnant? And she said, I I don't know, I'm not sure. But Marcia's intuition, her experience, her knowledge all came in. And so she was able to make a very acute assessment. And so she was, she was pregnant with Jeremiah, our first child. That's wisdom. And wisdom can manifest itself in all kinds of ways in our life on all kinds of things. Wisdom is also accumulated knowledge, erudition, or enlightenment. So erudition is like education. A wise saying or wise sayings or teachings. Wisdom involves soundness of mind in reason and in logic. That alone disqualifies so many people in our culture today. The inability to do critical thinking is just stunning. Do you not see this? Stunning. In fact, critical thinking is, in many respects, it's often rejected because critical thinking robs a person of how they really want to feel about themselves. 
And that's not loving or tolerant. So that's all, you know, so I think scholastically that, that captures a lot of what wisdom is. So let me ask you this question. Without being guided by sentiment, who is or was the wisest person you have ever known? <clears throat> In other words, I don't want you to think back fondly on somebody because you love them. And they, I want you to think back about a person whom maybe you may have even disagreed with on a lot of things, but they were just really wise. Who was the wisest person that you have ever known in your life? Yeah, I'm asking for hands. Your brother that's now in the nursing home. Okay. All right. Good. Someone else? The wisest person you have ever known. Now, let me just tell you something. In biblical times, and even during the time of Jesus, and, and probably for a number of centuries after that, if you were to ask a person, who was the wisest person you have ever known, there wouldn't be a person that would not be able to say someone. Because wisdom was part of the culture. I mean, people understood who was impacting their life and how they thought and what they did. And so they had tremendous respect. In fact, uh, even in Jesus' day, uh, a, a standard habit and behavior uh, was for the elders to congregate outside a city gate, and there they would do business. But if somebody who was living either in the city or in the rural portion of the community in which they lived was confused or puzzled about something, how to get along with a neighbor, whether or not they should invest, they would go to the city gate. And they would sit down with the, the elders there and they would say, hey, this is my problem. What do you think? And the elders would share with, from their experience and knowledge how those people should move forward in their life on those issues. So I think it's important that all of us know somebody or get acquainted with somebody that we consider to be wise that has the ability to speak into our life, that we can be transparent with, vulnerable to. That doesn't mean that they, they are uh, infallible in what they say. Ruth and I watched this show. I don't even know if I should bring it up. But the show is called Mom. How many of you have ever seen Mom. It has quite a following, but there's a woman there who's a former alcoholic and drug addict who's been free for decades, but over the years acquired a tremendous amount of wisdom, and she is the sage. And all of these other women who are just coming out of their addiction look to her to help them to navigate that part of their life and other parts of their life. 
So in that way, in particular, that show, at least in, in modeling that, it's very redemptive. So let me ask you this question then. What is the wisest thing you have ever heard? So much so that it's been a guiding principle for you for years. The wisest thing you have ever heard, so much so it has been a guiding principle for you for years. Yeah, Patty. Yeah. Always remember, when in doubt, don't. And not just for driving, but yeah, in life in general. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I Yeah, it's worth a second thought or two. Yeah, yeah. When in doubt, don't. Yeah, that's good. You never said anything to her. Maybe that was wise too. Who knows? You know. <laughs> Anybody else have something? Yeah, Ruth? My mom was forever quoting scripture to us, but it, it stuck in our heads throughout the years, and um, it always comes up, either scriptures or hymns or something. But probably one of the most um, lasting was um, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And she also always said, Yeah. So she preached that to us always to be a good friend, mm -hmm. be kind. And she was that. She was that to others. Yeah. She really was. I loved my mother in law. She was great. Yeah. <laughs> always make yourself look good, but always make your boss look better. Uh, some very real-world uh, advice that is absolutely true. In the church, among youth ministers, you've got to remember that, uh, you know, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And so if you're the youth minister, you can't come off like David who's killed his ten thousands because most senior pastors don't like that kind of comparison. You know, you always had to defer, defer. Well, this is only possible because the senior pastor, you always had to do that because some of them were just kind of fragile and they had a difficult time. So it was that kind of a thing. Somebody else? One more? Yeah, Ada? It's better to be respected than liked. Better to be respected than liked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they recognize your intent to yeah. be there to, to help. And that is, that's a whole other thing as well. Yeah, and great advice for parents too, right? Because sometimes, yeah, you know, you need to be respected by your kids, not necessarily liked by your kids, right? So, But that's a true adage, I think, for people in general. Because you can be liked but not respected. It'd be nice to be respected and liked, but that isn't always possible either. So here's one for me. 
I, when I went to Geneva College in 1983, it's 100 years ago, it seems like. Yeah, that's true, 1970, the fall of 1979, yeah. See, I'm getting old, I can't remember uh, when I did all that. But it was in October 1994, I was sitting in the class of the sociology professor, Dr. Russell Hedendorf. And he said this, and it was worth the $35,000 education at the time. It is, there is always a reality beyond the one that you perceive. There is always a reality beyond the one that you perceive. And wisdom is the better part of understanding those other realities. There's always something else going on behind what's happening now in front of you. When somebody comes to you for counseling and they say these are the circumstances, as soon as you start drilling down a little bit, there's a whole world behind those circumstances. And this has guided me my whole life. It's guided me, I mean, there, there is no end to this application of this text. No end to it. It's been a guiding principle for me. So I would encourage all of you to take some time to think through what person who was, what was the wisest person I've ever had in my life and either they or something else you've heard what is the wisest thing that you've ever heard that is a guiding principle for you? If, if you can do that, you will understand yourself so much better. Because the fact of it is that sometimes we hear wise things early in life, we kind of forget them, but then they act as a subroutine in our consciousness. They guide us without ever realizing that it guides us. Sometimes it's an experience. Sometimes we have some kind of like traumatic experience. And we've kind of forgotten it, but that traumatic experience shaped us in a way that we think differently and we do differently based on that. Because we see that as wisdom. Does that make sense to you all? Am I, I hope I'm being clear about that. But So another question. When have you ever prayed not just for wisdom, but to be wise? When have you ever prayed not just for wisdom, but to be wise? Those are two different things. Usually when we pray for wisdom, it's, it's for an event. But when, we pray for, but when we pray to be wise, it's because we want our nature to be changed. Finally, the final question is, what specific ways are you choosing not to be wise in this season of your life? <laughs> well, there's a kicker. What specific way or ways are you choosing not to be wise in this season of your life? Is this not true of all of us? Yes, Patty? Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And I saw her earlier today, and I said, I asked her about school, and I said, Gianna, I'm just confident you're the kind of person you really are. No matter where you go, given enough time, you will flourish. You will flourish. And she is. She's that kind of person. All right. Um, Solomon tells us in Proverbs 3.13, 3.13 through 16, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. I think the illusion there is power. And nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. The truth of the matter is, is that, um, and I'll get into this with Solomon, but in the same way that Solomon pursued wisdom instead of these other things, because he pursued wisdom, God blessed him with these other things. Wisdom will bless us with these things as well. So, human wisdom versus God's wisdom. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 33. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 33. And I'll have this up here on the screen, but I think it's good if you have your Bible to use it uh, as a workbook of, of sorts for these kinds of things. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 33. So Luke records, and just keep in mind here that the Apostle Paul was in the city of Athens, a Greek city, in 52 AD when this event that we're going to read occurred. So it was 52 AD when this occurred. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. That word provoked means to exasperate, to irritate, to arouse to anger. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols, and Athens would have been full of idols. So he reasoned, so Luke chooses this word very carefully because he's in Athens, the epicenter of Greek philosophy. So he reasoned in the synagogue, so he must have reasoned in the synagogue because the Jews were also impacted by Greek philosophy, and they reasoned as well. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he was debating, he was discussing, he was reasoning with them about God. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now Epicureanism was a kind of Greek philosophy uh, which declared that Pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, is the highest good through the simple life. And the Stoics believed that the practice of virtue is enough to achieve eudaimonia, that is, well-being, or a flourishing life. Philosophically, the Epicureans and the Stoics were kind of enemies, and they would debate each other ad nauseum. So, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now that word babbler uh, is a term that suggests one who pecks at ideas like a chicken pecks at seeds and then spouts off without fully understanding them. So that's what's implied behind this word babbler. So they're basically saying Paul is a lightweight and he's talking about stuff and philosophical stuff that he has no idea what he's talking about. What's interesting is when I get on my philosophical study discussion in Facebook and I bring up things about God and I discuss them in a rational way, they might as well call me a babbler. That's the standard attitude towards Christians who talk about their faith and who seek to have scholastic academic discussions. The other scholars and academics see you only as a babbler. You know, some things never change, do they? <coughs> so then he goes on, Luke goes on. Yes. Yeah. I think he was waiting for other apostles to come into Athens, like Barnabas, maybe John Mark, people like that. I, I had to, this is a lengthy uh, quote I have here, so I had to cut it off at some point. So, yeah. So then he goes on to say, um, in verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, the Areopagus was a governing body that exercised jurisdiction over matters of religion and morality <coughs> there in Athens. And so this Areopagus wanted to examine him. He was talking about these things in the streets of Athens, in the synagogues, and he raised, apparently, some, uh, a lot of discussion and so this group of people said, we want to examine you. Now, that Areopagus, that meeting was held on the hill of Ares, or Mars Hill. Ares is the Greek for the god of war. Mars is the Latin for the god of war. So it was on that hill that they had this, probably in, a, in, a, in an arena of sorts. Verse 21, now all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In other words, Luke was implying they were babbling. Right? So there's no small irony here. And I think that's the implication that the, that the apostle Luke was saying. They're going to call Paul a babbler. I'll call him a babbler. Verse 22 so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
So Paul is astute. He's going through Athens, and he sees this idol, this unknown. So they figure that they've got to cover all the gods, and there must be some god out there that they don't know about, and they're going to worship that god, right? And Paul is saying, well, the god that you are worshiping that you think you suspect is there, this is the god that I'm going to tell you about. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. So Paul doesn't hold back. He comes out with both barrels, right? Because the Greeks are, are um, you know, they're polytheistic. They believe in all kinds of gods. But that's not how Paul starts off. He starts off by saying, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord over heaven and earth. There was no soft sell here. He came right out. And he told him exactly who the God of the Jews and the Christians is. Does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So, so then he's kind of attacking what they do with their gods. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Look, he gives you the very ability to do what you do. So the Apostle Paul makes this supersessionism claim that this God is over everything. And then he says to them, you worship these gods um, because, as if they need you. And so both the Greeks and Romans believed that their gods had power because of humans worshiping them. If humans stopped worshiping them, they would have no power. The Apostle Paul is saying, this God doesn't need you to worship him. He doesn't need you. You need him. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, yet he actually, he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So the Apostle Paul, being the scholar that he is, was, well from, was aware of some of their own literature, some of their own poets, and he quotes them. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, and he just says, look, well, since we're God's offspring, he, he doesn't, there's no hypothetical here. He just says, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and Im imagination of man. That's not who God is. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What's this? You know, like, who in the world do you think you are, Paul, to say this? And he's basically accusing that their gods are nobodies. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, that is Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So if there was one thing that anyone feared back then, if there was one thing that anyone thought there was absolutely no power over, it was death. And yet Paul is making this claim that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Demonstrating once and for all that he was divine. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom, and some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now, this happened in 52 in Athens. Two years later, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the city, to the Christians in Corinth, a city also known for its Greek philosophy. This is two years after his discussion in Athens. So he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 21, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. I will stop. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? So he's being rhetorical here. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through its wisdom. If the world was so smart, if they were so wise, why is it that they don't know who God is and what God requires? It pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It, preached, it pleased God to use the crucifixion in Christ on the cross that we preach to save those who believe. So the wisdom of the world is not enough to save humankind. No matter how eloquent, sophisticated, fair, and even virtuous it might sound, the world's wisdom is insufficient. And we should not be overwhelmed or intimidated by that. We should be confident in the wisdom of God and what he claims and what he says about us. Now further... Many will not come to Christ because in their self-deception for being wise, they are blind guides. And that's how I read many that I read and have conversation with in that study group that I'm in. Then this, and so uh, Matthew records in Matthew 15, Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, he answered, Every plant my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. 
there are many people who consider themselves to be very wise in the world in which we live. And they're very patronizing about people like you and me. But they are blind guides. No matter how sincere or virtuous or sophisticated they may sound, they are blind guides and they ascribe to the wisdom of the world that will not get them where they think you and I need to be. It will not get them where you and I know they ought to be. It's only through the foolishness of the cross, Christ Jesus on the cross on our behalf, that they can get the wisdom that they need to achieve what they cannot get for themselves. Do not trust in the wisdom of the world. Now next week, or the week after, I'm gonna be talking about how we gain wisdom and what that kind of looks like uh, in our life and everyday world. So that will be part two of this little wisdom portion that I'm talking about.